And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me in the studio today is the Reverend Mark Diedrich. Good to be here, Dan. And Dr. Hans Vogt. Pleasure to be here. And we have a special guest with us today on the telephone, and that is Seward Osborne. And Seward is a local uh, Civil War historian, and uh, I believe you've written several books, five books, something like that. Seward, it's great to have you with us. Yes, I have. Thank you, Dan. And uh, my compliments to the other two gentlemen. Nice to be with you. (laughs) Today, I did already give away the secret. We're going to be talking about the Civil War. But Hans, um, the other day we were at a picnic together, and you said, uh, hey, why don't we do a plain answer on the Battle of Antietam? And of course, me being me, I uh, drew a complete blank. I realized, yeah, I think that's during the Civil War, um, but um, I knew nothing about it. So maybe you can get us started here today. Antietam is one of the pivotal battles of the Civil War, uh, and it's also the single bloodiest day in terms of casualties uh, of what was, of course, a a very uh, bloody war. Estimated total casualties on September 17, 1862, over 22,700 killed and wounded on a single day in a small Maryland town. Mm. So really one of the most tragic days in American history. Can't imagine that. I think what is so difficult to understand about that is for the human mind to comprehend that many casualties in simply one day. Mm. What I've often tried to do at lectures or the roundtable meeting is, in rough numbers, not exactly, but basically what that would have done locally was to make the city of Kingston a ghost town. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, good point. And that's a a little little something I've used to try to... uh, illustrate uh, just the magnitude of, um, of the, uh, and the scale of the terrific losses that mm-hmm. day. And it's really um, a tragedy in another sense in terms of representing, uh, from the Union standpoint, uh, a real opportunity lost. Um, you have a situation where the Union Army had been suffered a series of defeats in the summer of 1862. The um, assault on Richmond had been driven back with heavy losses. In July, um, the Union Army had then been suffered a shocking defeat at Second Bull Run uh, at the end of August. Uh, now, Robert E. Lee's army has crossed the Potomac for the first time. It's on northern soil, uh, and uh, there's real dissension and, and fear and growing opposition to the war in the North. And then, by um, you might say fate, you might say providence. Uh, two soldiers of an Indiana regiment find a copy of Lee's battle plans wrapped around three cigars. And at first they're happier about finding the three cigars, but then they realize what they've got. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it finally it gets turned over to McClellan. And McClellan has a rare opportunity of knowing exactly what his opponent, Robert E. Lee, is going to do. The army is divided, that is the rebel army, the Army of Northern Virginia is divided because he's planning a coordinated assault on Harper's Ferry. Mm -hmm. So he's got a chance to divide and conquer and crush Bobby Lee's army. In fact, he tells the subordinates, if I can't crush Bobby Lee with this, then I don't deserve to be a general. Well, that's interesting. That was prophetic, because that's, in fact, what happened. Mm. It's a shame that uh, had it been uh, another general other than McClellan, which, of course, Mm -hmm. this was uh, McClellan's second chance at Army Command, Mm 
uh, he, as you say, he had every opportunity. Uh, he had more men. He probably uh, his the Union strength that day was was easily double the size of Robert E. Lee's army. And then, as you said, Lee had uh, fragmented his army by uh, taking a portion off to capture Harper's Ferry. So when the initial assault, the assault began in the early morning hours, Lee was decidedly the underdog in numbers. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But McClellan was, uh, as usual, had overestimated numbers, was much too slow, uh, put in his forces in a fragmented uh, fashion, and held a, a terribly large number in reserve that never saw combat at all. Yeah, McClellan writes to Lincoln, President Lincoln, just a few days earlier that he was facing uh, an army not less than 120,000 men, when in fact it numbered at best 45,000. Isn't that interesting? And and on top of that, he waited, what, 14 hours? And then when he discusses it, there's a Maryland sympathizer in their presence, which quickly runs back and tells Lee... Guess what? They've got your plans. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was all known. And, and the other thing is the Lee's numbers, I suggest, were lower than 45. Right, 45 on paper, but effective is much less. You're right. Yes, effective <laughs> yeah. is probably closer to 30,000. He had lost a tremendous amount by straggling. Mm-hmm. Many of the Confederate soldiers were without shoes, little food, Coming off uh, the uh, the second Bull Run campaign, mm. and then um, the uh, passes at uh, Crampton's Gap and uh, right South uh, Mountain that South Mountain campaign, and these men were were a lot of them were just plain sore, hungry, and tired, and and they they had had enough of war. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at the clock here, and we have a break coming up today. We're talking about the Battle of Antietam. That took place during the time frame of the war between the states. And uh, that anniversary, it's the, what, the 150th anniversary taking right. place on the 17th, which is Monday. So in just, uh, what, a couple of days from now is the 150th anniversary of that very important battle of the Civil War. Today in the studio, the Reverend Mark Diedrich, Dr. Hans Vogt, and on the phone with us is Seward Osborne. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 
1-2-4-6-1. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 1-2-4-6-1. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer right here at Redeemer Broadcasting. Today we're talking about the Battle of Antietam. Before the break, um, I was just struck by the total number that were killed and wounded. I think someone mentioned it was 22,700, and that's just a phenomenal number of people. It is. And, um, you know, again, if you if you kind of even think of um, you know, the, the tragedy of September 11, 2001 in comparison... Yes. Um, you know, and again, you're talking about a single day, a single spot right. uh, in Sharpsburg. Um, and and uh, may I add, I mean, that was earlier this week, we recognized and observed right. the uh, 11th anniversary of those attacks. The, the other significance of the battle, though, has to do with the, the, the broader, you know, sort of underlying root issue or, or bone of contention in the war, and that, of course, was the issue of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, there were many on the Union side who had been urging Abraham Lincoln from the beginning of the war to move towards abolishing slavery. Um, Congress had passed two different confiscation acts allowing for the seizure of all rebel-owned property, mm. including human property in the form of slaves. Um, but Union commanders had been uneven in their enforcement of it. Some had been very zealous in using it to free slaves. Others had refused to use it for that purpose. Uh, and there was, a, there was a, a growing frustration on the part of northern abolitionists. Why don't you do something? In fact, on August 19th, Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune, leading Republican Party figure, had written an open letter to the president, uh, a very moving letter in, in which he castigated Lincoln and said, you have got to act on this issue. And Lincoln had responded three days later, again, open letter published in the, in the Tribune, mm-hmm. saying, my paramount objective in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. Hmm. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Now, that said, when he, when he wrote that, he had the Emancipation Proclamation already drafted. It was pigeonholed in his desk. He was waiting for a major Union victory. He did not want it to appear to be the last desperate act yeah. of a dying cause. Well, isn't that kind of a typical of a political figure sure. even today? Sure. Yeah. Sure. And so Antietam, although it's pretty much a stalemate, um, Union armies do hold the field. At, at the end, you know, Lee retreats. And so five days later, September 22nd, 
Lincoln issues the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, mm-hmm. uh, which is a warning. If you don't end the rebellion by January 1st, then I will free all slaves in rebel-held territories. Mm-hmm. And then on January 1st, 1863, he will issue the, the final mm-hmm. document. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it is in all rebel-held territories. Right. It's not right. freeing all the slaves. It's not making them citizens. It's not doing a lot of things. Right. Um, but uh, so it would come political. short uh, of what we might expect today, but yes. maybe that's all that he felt that he could accomplish. Well, yes, right. you have to remember that the Constitution of the United States protected slavery, yes. and therefore the only way to abolish slavery everywhere in the U.S. would be to amend the Constitution, and that's what right. will happen two years later with the mm-hmm. 13th Amendment. So Lincoln acted under his war powers as commander in chief. But he was careful not to exceed that authority and act mm-hmm. in areas where he didn't have any constitutional authority to do it. Hmm. it. It also must be remembered that Lincoln was not a uh, a president who was well liked terrifically by North or South. Yeah. He mm-hmm. had he had many enemies, uh, particularly in New York City, uh, among the uh, the mercantile. Association, which we're st- we're still making huge profits mm-hmm. on cotton and uh, and and other things that they would be shipping south. And Lincoln was not; he, he barely was reelected by the skin of his teeth a second time. In fact, he openly said that he did not expect to be reelected. Yes. The other way in which the Emancipation Proclamation is a game changer is in terms of the reaction in Europe. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that's important to understand here is that uh, in early September of 1862, uh, the British cabinet was seriously considering intervention to bring the Civil War to an end, which would have basically guaranteed Southern independence, uh, mm-hmm. in part because of pressure from cotton textile manufacturers in England who were feeling the pinch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Emancipation Proclamation basically ends that. All of a sudden, public opinion in England turns around behind the North. Now it's a war to end slavery. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and it, mm-hmm. probably the last best chance the South had at that point was intervention. Um, yeah. And with that taken off the table, it, it really yeah. gave the, the long-term advantage to the North. Now, I, I'm still struck by these. Um, Seward, I think I interrupted you. Oh, I, that's all right. Uh, I, I just wanted to shift gears slightly because I think it is so important uh, for the audience to understand that uh, this was also highly, uh, in technology, uh, for example, photography started, mm-hmm. I believe, in this country about 1839 mm-hmm. with the daguerreotype. Um, it adv- advanced considerably. This was really the first time that war the horrors of this uh, uh, this war with these unbelievably staggering numbers was brought by photography into the homes of the average Amer- Americans. Oh, that's a good and point. And it was it was staggering. It was it was much more than reading a column of numbers in a newspaper. Mm-hmm. This this was the the, sh- the shock, the reality. Of uh, of the horribleness of this, and it is it, it should be noted because it is uh, it is terribly important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, even today, if you yeah. look on the, at the pictures of the the dead bodies piled up in sunken lane mm-hmm. by the end of the mm-hmm. day, I mean it it's it turns your stomach now. And well, I was going to mm-hmm. ask you guys. I mean, 
here's all these dead people, dead bodies. Um, what do they do with them? Are they still fighting a war, tripping over bodies? I mean, what happens? By the end of the day, uh, they're kneeling on dead bodies three oh. deep in sunken lane. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, still fighting. Yeah. When you yeah. walk through that, when you walk through that uh, bloody lane or the sunken road, as it was called, also, you walk there today. It's green. It's quiet. Uh, it belies uh, the the terrible tragedy that occurred there on the seventeenth of September, mm. and there are many human interest stories which abound. Uh, one Confederate uh, officer nearly drowned in his own blood, in his own cap, mm. because he couldn't move. And then there would, the bodies were just so deep, and it, it, it was it was just a, um, a terrifically horrible scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think also you have to understand very often what happened with these armies is they just moved out, and it was left to the townspeople. To okay. to take care of the dead bodies, and, I think to answer and your the question. dead horses and the dead horses and, yes. and the other uh, remains, you know, such as that, which uh, the stench, uh, uh, yeah. the the magnitude of the bodies that, particularly at at Sharpsburg, uh, mm-hmm. because it was such a remote area, and there were fewer civilians to take care of such an enormous mm-hmm. problem. And what strikes me, and it's obvious, but some of these leaders of the Civil War had studied together probably at West Point. Absolutely. Sure, yeah. Robert E. Lee was superintendent, commander of West Point for yep. oh three, four yep. years. Yes, what a terrible tragedy. Um, I can't resist it. You guys probably don't want me to go here, but i got to ask it. Um, what's the perception of people... Um, during this time frame, back during the Civil War, of their federal government, whether north or south, as compared to people today? Well, certainly there's, it's a much smaller, it's a much less powerful federal government. Mm-hmm. It's nowhere near as intrusive. It has nowhere near the impact on their daily lives hmm. that the federal government does today. Yeah. But at the same time, you have people who are willing to volunteer because it's still an overwhelmingly volunteer army in the Civil War, oh, yeah. most of us, um, who are willing to volunteer to fight for that government and that country. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you've seen Ken Burns, you've, and I'm, I'm sure many mm-hmm. of our listeners have, and they remember yeah. the, you know, some of the moving letters, Sullivan Ballou's letter uh, yep. to his wife right before First Bull Run about being willing to lay down all his joys in this life, you know, for the sake of, of the government it's and the country. Really, it, you know, yeah. And more than just the government, in a day, uh, in today's uh, term, when uh, in God we trust, uh, off the coins, that was first started in 1864, mm-hmm. uh, the Pledge of Allegiance taken out of the, uh, the public sector. It was more than just a government. These men were fighting for the for old glory, mm-hmm. for the flag, for, for the... Uh, uh, for America's banner, that really meant something. It had meaning, far didn't more it? than today. Mm. Yeah, good point. What about the religious context and uh, the religious that um, was very on important the ground? Because you're coming off a huge uh, pastor. What is the word I'm looking for? In 1850, a huge revival. The businessman's yeah. revival. Yes, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. religion played a, a huge part in the American Civil War. And if you read the diaries and letters of these young men, it becomes apparent very quickly 
that the revivals in the 1850s had a huge impact mm-hmm. and is the reason that many countless thousands of these young lads were not afraid to go to war because they knew where they were going should they be killed. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you can see that uh, with uh, some of the leaders, especially Stonewall Jackson, yes. especially very committed mm-hmm. uh, Christian man. And I, I think... Uh, you know, I, I'm sure you can nitpick here and there in some of the movies, but I think Gods in general just does a, a pretty decent job of getting a lot of the character of Stonewall Jackson. Mm-hmm. It does an excellent job. can convey who this man was yes. and uh, his deep Christian faith. And so I think that's, yeah, it's very important. Interesting, though, with the Civil War, you had a lot of the theologies going very strongly against slavery mm-hmm. in the North. Mm-hmm. But you also had theologians standing up and saying, we can justify it in the South. Oh, James, yes. James, yes. Hen- James Henley Thornwell, his basic argument, and I'm sure he, he had more to it. I don't want to dump on him too badly here. But he basically said, is slavery biblical? Do you find slavery being in the Bible? And, of course, the answer is, yes, you do. Mm-hmm. Therefore, he said, slavery is justified. Hmm. The problem I have uh, with that is you have to look at the kind of slavery that's described in the Bible and then compare it to some of the chattel slavery Good that point. was in the exactly. South. Yes. And, and, they're, and, and they're nothing alike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Well, I'm just looking at the clock here. We only have a few minutes uh, to wrap everything up. I'm looking at Han's vote also, and I'm thinking, okay, where do we go with here in order to uh, kind of conclude today's uh, wonderful discussion about this battle? Well, I think part of, you know, we talk about Antietam and, and the, the setting the stage for, for the Emancipation Proclamation. You know, part of the, the reasoning for doing that, obviously, is for Lincoln to seize the moral high ground, mm-hmm. um, and, and which he will elaborate on in the Gettysburg Address when he will explicitly make this a war about a new birth of freedom, as he calls it. Um, but then I'm reminded of the words of his second inaugural, where he, he says both sides read the same Bible, pray to the same God, yes. each ask his assistance uh, against the other. And then he says something very interesting. He says the prayers of both could not be answered. That mm. of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Mm. So that mm. recognition that, you know, just as the... the uh, you know, just as the angel said to Joshua, you know, whose side are you on? I'm on the Lord's side. Yes. God has his own purposes, and yeah. he recognized that it, he couldn't simply say God is on our side. The other thing militarily is that McClellan lost uh, a, a fantastic opportunity to end the, all but end the war at Antietam. Mm-hmm. Yes. And with that failure, we have 1863... 1864 and 5, 64, probably the bloodiest year of the war yet mm-hmm. to come. Oh and America would be devastated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a real yeah. opportunity lost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is, I think, the second one Hans says, God has his purpose. When you look at the Old Testament and we see our sinfulness and it is justly deserving of punishment, even Israel under such a king such as David, had its setbacks yes. because of the sinfulness 
And, uh, you know, you look at both sides, and you're right. They were both praying to the same God. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, God was judging, I think, our country Mm. uh, for the sins of slavery, for the sins of many things. And uh, we need to to recognize that and just come humbly before God, always ready uh, to ask his forgiveness. Think of uh, us today here in conclusion. Uh, we have many sins as a nation, and yeah. we need to fear God. Uh, yeah, he, absolutely. He, he does not sit idly by. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me here today. We've had Reverend Mark Diedrich, Dr. Hans Vogt, and Seward Osborne. I'm Dan Elmendorf. This entire broadcast is up on our website. Check it out at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. And a reminder to please join us again next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. Woods near Old Donker Church, gray through the swales, gray through the birch, gray in the cannon and then musket ball, Antietam's fields. Lay down their swords, McClellan.